Hello and welcome to Spirit Pig. Inspired by the mission 7 Billion Fulfilled People, I track down the greatest thought leaders on the planet and interview them about happiness and fulfillment. Today I'm speaking with Johan Hari. Johan is the author of the New York Times best-selling book, Chasing the Scream, which is being adapted into a feature film. His TED talk, Everything You Think You Know About Addiction Is Wrong, and the, animated, and the animation based on it have had more than 20 million views. However, it's his latest book, Lost Connections, which is another New York Times bestseller that I'm going to speak to him about today. What really causes depression and anxiety? How can we really solve them? Johan suffered from depression since he was a child, started taking antidepressants when he was a teenager, and continued to do so for 13 years. He was told his problems were caused by a chemical imbalance in his brain. As an adult, trained in the social sciences, he began to investigate whether this was true, and he learned that almost everything we've been told about depression and anxiety is wrong. Across the world, Hari found scientists who were uncovering evidence that depression and anxiety are not, in fact, caused by a chemical imbalance in our brains. In fact, they are largely caused by key problems with the way we live today. Johan, thanks so much for being here. Round two. All right. I think we should inform the listeners and viewers. I, I, was, I, I, I was going to. So, so, so basically, <laughs> I... I to this interview right so i i i, I owe <laughs> johan an apology because i'm i'm pretty good at my timings like the timing started and i was i was there on time like i meant to be and then about five minutes in i heard this commotion outside and so johan has just been twiddling his fingers for the last 45 minutes there's there's a cobra in my house at the moment and <laughs> we, we 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 actually we've been trying to get rid of it and we haven't seen it for about 10 minutes so we're not sure if it's gone or if it's just hiding in a room somewhere so if I suddenly just drop it if I suddenly my if my audio suddenly goes then that means I've been attacked by the cobra if we suddenly hear screaming outside it means the cobra's been found again so yeah it's, it's the first amazing so this could be the last interview you ever carry out I also should say I am in Crouch End in North London where the greatest danger to me is that someone might accidentally move my garden furniture right so uh this will not happen to me, but uh, I don't know, maybe the first Cobra ever in Crouch End. That would be an ironic twist. If you, having set all that up, I now get killed by a Cobra. <laughs> all, all my knowledge of nature comes from Disney films. So I'm literally picturing Shere Khan from The Jungle Book now. Right? I have no, like my view, like I recently, um, well, recently, a couple of years ago, I was in Zimbabwe doing some research for something else in rural Zimbabwe. And I saw a hippo. And because when we were kids, there was a um, an advert for, I think it was a kind of yogurt, which had a really friendly dancing hippo. <laughs> oh, look at this lovely, friendly creature. It's going to do a little dance for us in a tutu. And they were like, no, this, this animal will certainly kill you if you go anywhere near it. So yeah, I'm such a city person that like, so Shere Khan was horrible. So Disney did correctly warn us that you should avoid cobras. But it lied to us about many other things. Crickets can't sing happy little jolly songs and give you words of wisdom, for example. A fact that has never failed. To us. <laughs> but as excuses go, when I said I've got to go, I've got a cobra in my house, you're like, well, that, that's that's the first time I've heard that one. So it's it was it, <laughs> definitely justifiable. Definitely, yeah, exactly. Oh wow. Well, also I'd like to say that I don't. I like I haven't really done hardly any repeat interviews, but I wanted to get you back on because. This is well, what we're going to delve into, Lost Connections, in this book. I read it and I was, I was genuinely blown away because such a big and important topic and it's the research that has gone into it, like the, the amount of studies and you've been all over the world and talking to the most incredible people and it is, it is absolutely, it's dense with the most 
impactful, amazing studies. And so I, I sent you an email a couple of weeks ago, but just thank you for, I know, doing the homework and doing this research and getting out to the world. And I'm, I'm excited just to jump in and actually delve into some of these things that you've discovered during the course of it. Uh, thanks very much, Duncan. I really appreciate that. Cheers. So just a couple of just stats just to start with. So like, well, one in five US adults is taking at least one drug for a psychiatric problem. One in three French people is taking illegal psychotropic drugs such as an antidepressant. The UK, where we're both from, has almost the highest use in all of Europe. So basically taking drugs for depression is now, that's, that's now the norm almost, isn't it? Yes, it's worth saying it's one in five Americans will take a, a psychiatric drug in their lifetime. So that's not at any okay. given moment. Gotcha. In France, it's one in three across a year. And Britain has extremely high, as you say, one of the highest levels in, in Europe. And, um, you know, I thought a lot about this because it, it's not that that it's not that taking um, drugs for depression is inherently a bad thing. There is evidence they can give some relief to some people and that has real value. To me, there's a kind of deeper conversation that has to be had. I wanted to understand this for a very personal reason. Um, but also a kind of bigger reason. You know, so there were these two mysteries that were kind of hanging over me, right? The first is I'm 39 years old. Almost every year that I've been alive, depression and anxiety have increased in the Western world. I wanted to understand why. And as I say, for a more personal reason, when I was a teenager, I'd gone to my doctor I'd explain that I had this feeling like pain was leaking out of me and I couldn't control it or regulate it or understand it. I felt quite ashamed of it. And my doctor told me a story that I now realize was really oversimplified. My doctor said, well, we know why people feel this way. Um, scientists have discovered it. There's a chemical called serotonin in people's brains. Some people, it makes people feel good. Some people are naturally lacking it. You're clearly one of them. Um, all we need to do is give you these drugs and you'll feel better. And I started taking an antidepressant called Siroxat or Paxil in the US. And I did feel a lot better. I felt a really significant boost for a few months. And then this feeling of pain started to come back through. So I went back to the doctor. He said, obviously, I didn't give you a high enough dose. He gave me a higher dose. Again, I felt a boost. Again, this feeling of pain started to come back. And I was really in this cycle where I was taking a higher and higher dose until for 13 years, I was taking the maximum possible dose the end of which I was still really depressed and I had loads of horrible side effects like massive weight gain. And I wanted to understand well, what, what, what's going on here. I'm doing everything that I'm being told to do, but I'm still feeling bad. Are there more people like me? Why, why is depression rising so much? So as you say, I went on this big, long journey. It was over 40,000 miles. I interviewed the leading experts in the world about what causes depression and anxiety and people with very different perspectives from an Amish village in Indiana because the Amish have very low levels of depression to... Uh, a city in Brazil that banned advertising to see if it would make people feel better to a lab in Baltimore where they were giving people psilocybin, the active component in magic mushrooms to see if that helped them. And I learned lots of things. But I think the core of it was, you know, and I realized until, until I went to my, my doctor when I was a teenager, I thought my depression was all in my head, meaning, you know, I was just being weak, I needed to man up and set whatever stigmatizing cliche you want there. And then for the next 13 years, I thought it was all in my head, meaning it was just a chemical imbalance in my brain. But actually, while there are very real biological factors that do make you more vulnerable to depression that I write about in the book, largely the causes are not in our heads. They're in the way we're living, specific aspects of the way we're living. I learned there's scientific evidence for nine 
causes of depression and anxiety, two of them are indeed biological, seven of them are factors in, in the way we live. And that opens up a very different set of solutions that we need to offer alongside the drugs that you're talking about. This isn't about taking those drugs off the menu, it's about expanding the menu, expanding how we think about this to deal with the deeper causes. It's fascinating because you, you mentioned a second ago the word story. And so when, when a doctor gives a patient a medical treatment, they're, they're effectively giving them two things, aren't they? The one hand, they're giving them the drug, which will usually have a chemical effect on the body. But the second part is they give them a story. What, what, is, what do you mean by story and why, why is that important? Well, human beings are storytelling animals, right? That's, that's who we are. Um, we have an inherent need to tell stories about the world. Children intuitively begin to tell stories. It's a very important part of child development. It happens very, very young. Um, and in fact, if you don't have that, then you're regarded as profoundly cognitively um, disabled. Um, and, you know, giving people a story about their pain is one of the most powerful things you, you can you can do. It, structure, it then structures how you interpret your pain, how you... Th- find ways out of it. And I think one of the reasons why, you know, we spoke before about my previous book, Chasing the Scream, which was about addiction and the war on drugs. And I remember, you know, it's a sign of how frightened I was to look into this story I've been told that I wanted to write this book seven years ago about depression. And I figured it would be easier to write a book that required me to go and spend time with hitmen for the Mexican drug cartels than to do this because you know, so I ended up going, hanging out with people who beheaded 70 people. And that genuinely was less frightening to me than looking at this story. Because when you've got a story about your pain, even when it doesn't work very well, it structures the world. It's like if you think of your pain as a wild beast prowling around you, what a story does is it puts a leash on that animal. It, it, at least you know where it is. At least you feel you understand what's going on. And perhaps the, I think the, there were many difficult things for me in the research for Lost Connections. But I think the hardest part was the dismantling of this old story. The, but it, but I, I felt that if I, if I stayed with it, I would get to a better story. So I can talk about the flaws in the old, old story if you want. So yeah. it's shocking to me, really shocking to, you know, to, to see the leading experts explaining there's, there's just no evidence that depression is caused by some spontaneous serotonin imbalance. The leading expert at Princeton University, Professor Andrew Skull, says it is, I think the phrase he used was, it's deeply misleading and unscientific to say depression is caused by low serotonin. Dr. David Healy, who's one of the leading experts here in Britain, although a more controversial figure than Professor Skull, um, says you can't even say, he's a very good historian of this, I disagree with him on some things, but he says, you can't even say the idea that depression is just caused by low serotonin was discredited because there was never a time when it was credited. There was never a time when half of the scientists in the field believed that. The reason we were told that story is because the drug company, it was a very good story for the drug company PRs because it implies where well, you just have a natural imbalance in this problem and you, know, you have a natural imbalance and the drugs restore you to a natural balance. That's not what happens. Now, that doesn't mean there's no value in, in chemical antidepressants. There is some value for some people. I can talk about how if you want. But, you know, one of the things that really, they're not solving the problem for most people, but they are giving some relief to some people. And that's, the, you know, some people interpret that as a defense of antidepressants, chemical antidepressants, and some people interpret that as a terrible attack on chemical antidepressants. 
I think it's just a nuanced understanding. It will fit with what most people see around them. Most of the people they know taking chemical antidepressants. Some of them are getting some relief. Some of them are getting terrible side effects. Um, and most of them are still going to have a lot of problems that the chemical antidepressants are not solving. Um, but to me, there was this moment. It's funny, I was learning so much of this intellectually, and there were these moments when it kept falling into place for me. And for me, one of the key moments was I went to interview a South African psychiatrist called Dr. Derek Summerfield. And Derek happened to be in Cambodia when chemical antidepressants were first introduced there in uh, 2001. And the local doctors, the Cambodian doctors, didn't know what these drugs were. So he explained to them and they said to him, oh, we don't need them. We've already got antidepressants. And he said, what do you mean? He thought they were going to talk about some herbal remedy. Instead, they told him a story. There was a farmer in their community who one day stood on a landmine and got his leg blown off. Um, so they gave him an artificial limb and he went back to work in the rice fields. But apparently it's extremely painful to work underwater when you've got an artificial limb. I'm imagining it was quite traumatic because he's been blown up there. He starts to cry all day, didn't want to get out of bed, classic depression. Doctors said, well, we gave him an antidepressant. Derek said, what was it? They explained that they went and sat with him. They listened to him. They realized that his pain made sense. It wasn't some irrational malfunction it had perfectly understandable causes they figured if they bought him a cow he could become a dairy farmer he wouldn't be in this situation that was upsetting him so much they bought him a cow within a couple of weeks his crying stopped within a month his depression was gone they said to Derek so that cow that's an antidepressant that's what you mean right what what those Cambodian if you've been raised the way to think about depression the way we have that sounds like a really bad joke I went to my doctor for an antidepressant he gave me a cow but, but what those Cambodian doctors knew intuitively is what the World Health Organization, the leading medical body in the world, has been trying to tell us for years. If you're depressed, if you're anxious, you're not a machine with broken parts. You're a human being with unmet needs and you need love and support to get those needs met. Everyone listening to this knows they have natural physical needs, right? You need food, you need water, you need shelter, you need clean air. Obviously, if I took them away from you, you'd be in terrible trouble, right? There's equally strong evidence that human beings have natural psychological needs. You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You need to feel that people see you and value you. And you need to feel you've got a future that makes sense. It's a whole range of them. Our culture's good at lots of things. I'm glad to be alive today. But we've been getting less and less good at meeting these deep underlying psychological needs. And it's certainly not the only thing that's going on, but it's a big factor in why we have this growing depression and anxiety crisis. One one of the things you you talked about was loneliness and some of the studies around that and being deeply lonely causes as much stress as much cortisol as being physically attacked by a stranger. That's that's a, a crazy comparison, but it's it's true, isn't it? Yeah, we are the loneliest. There's a few things about this. So we are the loneliest society there's ever been in the Western world. So to use the outlier of the US, there's a study that asks Americans. How many close friends do you have who you can call on in a crisis? And when they started doing it years ago, the most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer is none, right? It's not the average, but it's the most common answer. And, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot in the last week because one of the people who taught me so much about this, a man called Professor John Cassiopo at the University of Chicago, who's the leading expert in the world on loneliness, actually just died, which was a devastating loss because he was a relatively young man and he I mean, he made so many breakthroughs in this field. So he, he was the person who discovered what you just showed, that cortisol, the stress hormone, we release more of that when we're acutely lonely than when 
you're punched in the face by a stranger, or as much, sorry, not more. And, and Professor Cassiopo had shown all sorts of, made all sorts of incredible breakthroughs about, about loneliness. He proved that it causes depression and anxiety. Um, and, and his argument for why I found quite persuasive. So, what, Duncan, why are you and I alive, right? One key reason is that our ancestors on the savannas of Africa were really good at one thing. They weren't bigger than the animals they took down in a lot of cases. They weren't faster than the animals they took down. They were a lot better at banding together in groups and cooperating, right? And um, just like bees evolved to need a hive, humans evolved to need a tribe. And um, this is really deep in our, our sense of who, our, our deepest ingrained impulses, right? Um, and if you think about those circumstances, if you were separated from the tribe, you were depressed and anxious for a really good reason. You were probably about to die, right? That was a signal to get back to the group as quickly as as quickly as possible. And um, yeah, so so we know that depression and anxiety cause loneliness because they're incompatible with our underlying human nature. We know that loneliness has massively increased. So this gives us one of the it's one of the nine explanations I go through in Lost Connections for uh, why we have this huge. Um, depression and anxiety epidemic and why and it helps to understand why it would appear to be growing um and i wanted to figure out well what's the cow for that right what's the what's the antidepressant for that it turns out there is one um a, a really interesting one that's been tried in a really fascinating way so one of the heroes of my book is, is a man called dr sam everington so sam is a, a doctor in, in east london where, where i lived for a long time a very poor part of east london um, and sam's a general practitioner a gp and Sam was really uncomfortable because he had loads of patients coming to him with depression and anxiety. And he'd been told in his medical training, even though he knew this wasn't true, to tell people you've just got a chemical imbalance in your brain. That's all that's going on here. And just, just drug them. Like me, Sam's not opposed to chemical antidepressants. He thinks they do have some role. But he could just see it wasn't solving the problem for most of them, right? And he could see one of the problems they had is they were really, really lonely. So he decided to pioneer a different approach. One day, a woman came to him called Lisa Cunningham who I got to know well, Lisa had been shut away in her home for seven years with crippling depression and anxiety. Sam said to Lisa, don't worry, I'll carry on giving you these drugs. I'm also going to prescribe something else. I'm going to prescribe you to take part in a group. So there was an area behind the doctor's surgery that was known as dog shit alley, which gives you a sense of things. Like it backed onto a park though. And Sam said to Lisa, okay, what I want you to do is come and turn up twice a week um, I'll, I'll turn out and support you. I want you to meet with a group of other depressed and anxious people. And together we're going to turn dog shit alley into something beautiful. Right. So um, the first meeting they had, Lisa was literally physically sick with anxiety. Right. Um, but several things happened. So the first was the group had something to talk about that wasn't how terrible they felt. Um, normally we either drug depressed people or we give them an opportunity to go and talk about their pain, both of which have value. But this was something else. They decided they were going to learn gardening. They decided they were going to put their fingers in the soil. They were going to learn the rhythms of the seasons. There's a lot of evidence that exposure to the natural world is a very powerful antidepressant for reasons we can talk about if you want. So they started to interact with the natural world. <clears throat> they started to learn something they didn't know. These were inner city standards, didn't know anything about these things. Um, another thing that happened is they began to form a tribe. And they did what human beings do when we form tribes. They started to solve each other's problems. So, for example, it's an extreme example, but there was a guy in the program who was sleeping on a bus, on the bus, the night bus. And everyone was like, well, of course you're depressed if you're sleeping on the bus. They started to pressure the local authority to get him housed. They succeeded. They got him a home. And it was the first time they'd done something for someone else in a really long time. It made them feel great. The way Lisa put it to me 
as the flowers began to bloom, as the garden began to bloom, we began to bloom. There was a study in Norway of a very similar program, part of a growing body of evidence, that found it was more than twice as effective as chemical antidepressants. I think for kind of obvious reason, right? It was dealing with two of the key reasons why they were depressed and anxious. In the first place, their disconnection from other people and their disconnection from the natural world. And I saw this all over the world from Sydney to Sao Paulo to San Francisco. The strategies that dealt best with depression and anxiety were the ones that dealt with the reasons why we feel so bad in the first place. It seems it's... Because well, when, you, when you're reading a lot of the things, when you say stuff like that, there's, there's a part of you which... It seems like, of course, it seems like, yeah, it makes so sense. It, it, does, it doesn't seem controversial. It doesn't seem these crazy out there ideas. Everything you were saying and everything when you're going through some of these, these reasons for the problems and then some of the solutions, I think we kind of know it intuitively. There's a part of us which it, it, it feels familiar. It feels like, yeah, of course. So I guess, what, what, do you think it just ties back to that story? I mean, I think the, um, the pharmaceutical companies um, may have made north of $100 billion from antidepressants. So there's, there's zero incentive to change this narrative and this, this story. It's, 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 do you think that's just the main thing? No, it's a bit more complicated than that. I mean, that, what you're describing is partly, partly what's going on. Obviously, I think it's too simplistic to just say it's all big pharma and it's all kind of big world. So, Look, obviously, there's a $10 billion industry uh, in telling Lisa that she's depressed because she's got a chemical, spontaneous chemical imbalance in her brain. And there's a $0 billion industry in getting her to go gardening with a group of people who are going to talk about right? So maybe not $0 billion because they did buy some gardening equipment, but a you know, very, very small amount of money. Um, I don't think that's the main reason. I think, it's, I think, it, I think it, there were other things going on. And, and one is, I think you went to it, which is, I think about this in relation to myself, right? I, I was very resistant to a lot of these things as I was learning them. And I kept thinking, well, why, why am I finding this so irritating to learn these things, right? And it's partly the pain of letting go of a story. But I don't think it was just that. It was, I wanted a solution that would take me 20 seconds in the morning, you know, like a pill did. So I could get back to my individualistic way of living and my all the thing, work things I wanted to do. And, and one of the things that was challenging about what I learned is there are things we can do as individuals that I go through in the book. But actually, most of the, the changes that will stop this epidemic growing and actually reverse this epidemic of depression and anxiety are bigger changes. They're things that we have to do together. And we live in a culture that's told us that it's not possible to do those things, right? I mean... You and I grew up in Britain. I think we're about, I think you might be a little bit younger than me, Duncan. I'm 39. Um, Yeah. So we grew up, you know, we grew you know, when I was a child and just before you were born, Margaret Thatcher, the British Prime Minister, famously said, there's no such thing as society. There's only individuals and their families. Right. And as you can probably guess, I never liked Margaret Thatcher. But I realized in the process of doing this, how much I had internalized that idea. Right. No such thing as society. There's only individuals and their families. All those years I was depressed and anxious, never occurred to me there were social causes of my depression and anxiety. Never occurred to me it was related to the way that the wider society works. And so many of the facts are about, like, for example, the more you think life is about money and how you look to other people, the more likely you are to become depressed and anxious. It's a really big effect, right? And just like junk food has taken over our diets and made us physically sick, a kind of junk values have taken over our minds and made us mentally sick as part of a machine 
that is promoted to us from the moment we're born. More 18-month-old children recognize the McDonald's M than know their own last name, for example. So we are immersed in this from the moment we're born. That's just one of many of the of the nine causes that I go through, and I'll give a lot more detail and evidence about that. But the, did I think all those years I started to feel bad and I tried to deal with it by going and buying things or showing off or bigging myself up? Did I think that had any relationship to my depression, causing my depression? On the contrary, I thought that was the solution to my depression, right? That was what I would do to try to make myself feel better. Um, I now realize it's like those, I think, is it Buster Keaton, the kind of thing where he gets starts to sink into quicksand and he reaches down to pull his legs out and of course it sinks in further. It's, it's like that, but, but, but. So I think to answer your question in more depth, why this story won out and really displaced kind of banal common sense, right? If you're really lonely, if you hate your work, if you're really insecure about the future, you're going to feel like shit, right? Well, you know, your grandmother could have told you that, right? Uh, you didn't need the World Health Organization to tell you. And yet at some level, we do need the World Health Organization to tell us because actually these insights, which are very deep, run quite counter to a lot of other trends in the culture and a kind of machinery that's trying to get us to think a different way. And to me, the worst thing about that story, the chemical imbalance story, is that what it tells you is that your pain is meaningless. It's just a malfunction. It's just a glitch. It's like a virus in a computer program, right? Or in a computer. And, and, and the most important thing, I think, to explain to people is your pain makes sense. You're not crazy. You're not deficient. It's not a flaw in you. Because um, if you tell people their pain makes no sense and just needs to be drugged into submission, remember drugs can give some relief to some people, what, what that does is it stops you looking for the sources of pain in your own life and it stops us as a culture looking for these collective sources of our pain and dealing with them. It, it diffuses the, per, the individual from understanding their problem and it depoliticizes the society from understanding the problem um, in a way that I think is really disastrous and does, you know, again, this is not conscious on the part of anyone. This is not a conspiracy. It doesn't work that way. It certainly doesn't work that way. But, you know, it's very convenient that we live in an age, you know, where wealth has been transferred up to the 1%, where everyone's been, you know, the middle class and the working class made to feel really insecure and quite humiliated. And they feel like shit as a result, partly as a result, there are many things going on. And yet what we're told is, oh, don't worry, it's just a spontaneous malfunction in all your brains, which mysteriously began to happen all around the same time. Um, and the solution is just you need to buy more things, right? Now, I'm not implying anyone at the top of that system thinks that way or it doesn't work like that. It's just that we've ended up with a system where... So you think about, for example, to go back to that example of Lisa in the gardening, you know, there is a lot of suggestive evidence that exposure to the natural world is a really powerful antidepressant, Right. The, the state prison in Michigan, a little study of this, the state prison in Michigan, just by coincidence, no one designed it this way, has one part that looks out of a beautiful greenery and another part that looks out over like a parking lot, concrete parking lot. The people who look in this random where you end up in the prison, the people who look out over the lush greenery developed 33% fewer mental health problems than the people who looked out of a bare concrete, for example. We know that animals in zoos go crazy when they're deprived of their habitat. Parrots rip out their feathers, horses start obsessively swaying and so on. Um, a similar thing is ha happens with humans when we're deprived of our natural 
habitat. I mean, there's lots of there's a debate about why nature deprivation makes us depressed, and that's not totally a consensus around that cause. There are other ones as well, but that's one of the things that's going on. To, to me, now, again, we live in a culture where only the causes and solutions that can be monetized get researched, right? Overwhelming, not entirely, but disproportionately. So, again, if you're researching an effect in the brain that might lead to a potential drug, which does have value, you can get a fortune. If you're researching taking people to walk in the woods will reduce their depression, which it does, well, there's not there's virtually no money to be made in taking people for a walk in the woods. And so that doesn't get monetized, so there's no research into it. And 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 that's um again leads to a distortion, right? A distortion in why we get told these heavily biological or exclusively biological stories uh, when the biology is real, but it's just one part of a much bigger picture. It's partly because of all these, these kind of overlapping distortions, which are not just about Big Pharma, right? That's, that's part of what's going on, but there's a more, more complex picture. And Big Pharma does lots of good things as well. Don't get me wrong. You know, it's not, I'm not, um, in fact, when it comes to the addiction debate in the US at the moment, I'm sort of regarded as a bit of a defender of Big Pharma because they're being blamed for the opioid crisis. And while they did do some things wrong, the main reason there's an opioid crisis is because people feel really bad. People are in terrible and deep pain. And so they're reaching for painkillers, right? Um, there's plenty to criticize about Big Pharma and opioids. But, you know, if you want to understand why there's been a mass outbreak of people turning to painkillers, we have to look at why there's been a mass outbreak in pain. Two statements which kind of just back up what you were saying, which I loved, was um, this pain, it's not your enemy, however much it hurts, it's your ally. And then also, depression isn't a disease. Depression is a normal response to abnormal life experiences. It's, it's almost the most rational response ever. It is, it is your body saying something is not right. And I, I, I love that, flipping on its head, saying, actually, this is almost, this pain, this hurt is your ally, I think that's a totally different way of looking at it. And like, I, I really like that. Yeah, I think that's really important. And, and it's not to say that it's not excruciatingly painful, right? I mean, the, the depression I've been through is the worst thing I've ever been through. But, you know, I sometimes think of an analogy, and this is a bit of a trivial analogy, and I'm obviously not making a literal comparison, but I spent a lot of my time in the US. And I remember first time um, I was in the US, um, being with a perfectly normal person, person like you and me, we were eating, and she started to take a, an, an indigestion tablet, Pepto-Bismol, and she offered one to me. And I said, I take this every time I eat because I get indigestion. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. <laughs> indigestion isn't like a malfunction. You want to drug into submission. Indigestion is a signal from your body that you're eating too fast, right? You, the solution to that is to slow down, eat less, eat more slowly. If you don't listen to that signal, you'll hurt your stomach, you'll, you'll put on weight, it, it'll be really bad for you, right? Indigestion isn't a malfunction, it's a function, right? Um, and in a similar way, although depression is infinitely more agonizing than, than, than indigestion, obviously, depression is a signal that our needs are not being met, that our deeper needs as human beings are not being met, that we've built a society um, and a culture and a way of living in some crucial, that has many great things about it, uh, many great things. There's a lot to be glad about about our lives and the way we live now. Um, and it wasn't some wonderful golden age when things were so much better in all sorts of ways. But, but 
we, we have created a culture that is not meeting people's psychological needs. It's why so many alarm bells are going off. It's why you're getting these very extreme political candidates being elected. One of the reasons why people like Donald Trump, Brexit, you know, you just in Germany, Alternative for Deutschland just became the second biggest party, an openly fascist party. Marine Le Pen came second in, in France and so on. These, these are symptoms. These are, these are alarm bells going off that are telling us a lot of people are in distress now. I think the way those individuals are expressing that distress in those cases is a disaster, obviously. You can guess what my politics are. But the, 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 I do think we need to understand these deeper causes and we need to deal with them. And when we understand depression and anxiety in this different way, it opens up a different set of solutions. So I go through seven different kinds of antidepressants, which set a kind of direction in which we might travel as a culture and as a society. Um, to 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 deal with these 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 deeper causes. If we don't deal with those deeper causes, we might we just be honest about it. A society of really isolated people, told that life is about buying junk, left to scream at each other through screens, is going to have a depression, anxiety, and addiction crisis for a really good reason. Right? That's not going to go away unless we change those fundamentals. This is the end of part one. Check out part two for the rest of the conversation.